The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. People don't realize that podcasts do not come out in the dark with long teeth and saliva dripping off their chin. People don't realize that there are podcasters among them. Okay, well, this is a very exciting day. We get to kind of change gears in, in a lot of ways, but first, let's acknowledge the third person in our virtual studio today. Uh, this is our uh, second time having this wonderful guest. This is uh, VP Morris. Do you want to say hello? Hey, guys. I'm super excited to be back for a second guest visit here. And I'm really excited to talk like some true crime and thrillers because that's my, my jam. And it's even more exciting because we can perform the very... I just crossed myself in the virtual space. The nighting of the second screen night ever. VP Morris, we now dub the Dame. Scream Night Dame VP Morris. That that I'm is the extent honored. of the that that is the extent of the ritual, unfortunately. But uh, you know, it's still the highest honor that we can bestow. Well, I'll take the initiation, it. The initiation ceremony is coming in the mail. Um, it will be there within five to seven business days. It'll be excellent. <laughs> be some sort of terrible laminated certificate or something. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, so we've uh, as as reference, we've had this delightful guest on uh, before, uh, specifically when we talked about the uh, I think only silent film we've ever talked about, which was Phantom of the Opera. But now we're going to be digging into uh, a little bit of true crime today, uh, looking at the film Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. But that's not the only reason that she's here today. Uh, We are also going to be talking a little bit about a project that she has uh, that will be available to everybody very, very soon. Uh, her her delightful book, and I can say that with confidence because I've read it, Shadowcast. But before we jump into uh, a little bit of information about Shadowcast, uh, let's let's just have have you uh, share a few things that you love in the the worlds of true crime and thrillers. Uh, you know, we we usually ask the the questions of like, yeah, what's your favorite horror movie? What's the scariest horror movie you've seen? But you can get those answers by listening to that previous episode. Today we are all about true crime and thrillers. So, yeah, what what are some of your favorite uh, true crime uh, things and uh, thrillers that that are out there? Because, um, you know, it I I personally need more recommendations. So I most of my like inspiration for my fictional work comes from the world of true crime. Even if I add a supernatural element to it, eventually everything kind of seems to come out of stories that I've read because I just find crime and abnormal psychology extremely fascinating. 
I recently read of people, it's, it's not on the vein of serial killers, but I recently read several books on the Columbine Massacre, which has now become like my case of interest, and my next book that I'm working on has to do with a mass shooting. So I found that case to be extremely interesting, and people tend to have a lot of preconceived notions about it because it was so highly publicized, but there are several books that I can recommend for that case. And it gets into the psychology of the perpetrator. So anything, I love anything that gets into why killers do the things that they do. Uh, just like the details of the, the you know, just the cold hard facts aren't always as interesting. I like it when a writer can at least try to infer what was going on in their brain when that happened. Um, I also just like collecting random bits of trivia about serial killers or mass murderers or who have you that has done crazy things, and my favorite bit of trivia is that someone was able to mug Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, I find it great that this awful monster was kind of given a taste of his own medicine, even though obviously a mugging is not as horrific as some of the things he's done, but um, as many people might know, he used to drug men at gay bars and bring them back to his house, and one night the drinks got switched, so he accidentally took his own roofie or whatever medicine he was using to knock these guys out and he woke up with his wallet and his uh, watch missing and it just makes me happy to know that there's some guy out there we don't even know his name but he was able to successfully rob one of the most dangerous men in the history of the world so that's my favorite little true crime nugget oh and and that is a delicious delicious nugget well, and I think it's kind of interesting, too, that it goes back to our saying at the beginning of the podcast, like, this man who mugged Jeffrey Dahmer would have no idea of the horrible things he was doing, you know? You never know. It's it's wild. For sure. Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> shifting gears into uh, the, the world of, like, thrillers, uh, because your book is definitely you know, more of a, th a thriller novel than anything else, are, are there any particular like thrillers that uh especially stand out to you or you know that that you also want to kind of hang a lantern on as as being you know, especially influential or just you know yeah for something that always the work of jillian flynn is my biggest inspiration as a writer her book actually everyone is obsessed with gone girl and i get because it it's fantastic but dark places in my opinion is a better book and um i agree it it deals with, thank you, oh my goodness, that's so nice. Oh, everyone looks at me like I'm crazy when I say that. It, it has more of a true crime element. There's less of an emphasis or almost no emphasis on any sort of romance or, or marriage because, as we all know, Gone Girl's all about a marriage that's coming undone, where this is mostly about a, a, the only survivor of a uh, family massacre, and uh, it really... It was sort of like lit a fire under me to write something similar to that, even though it's a bit more procedural, a bit more detective-esque. But I liked the idea of like, of she switches between different perspectives and different timelines. And I, I do something similar in my book of Shadowcast. I switch between the perpetrator and the investigator with almost every chapter. And I, it's a, you know, a few years old, but I recommend that one. Uh, something that's not procedural um, Lock Every Door by Riley Sager is really good. 
I just finished it. It doesn't have really a true crime element to it, but it's a good thriller. So if you're into something a little bit more light, then, you know, straight up trying to find a, a murderer or something, that's also a really good book. All right. Well, some ex- uh, excellent recommendations. I can, I can definitely second Dark Places. I, I like Dark Places a lot. I, I even liked uh, Sharp, Sharp Objects even more than uh, either of her other big, especially notable books, but... Um, that is a conversation for another time. Um, but, uh, all right. So obviously the, the, one of the big reasons you're here is you want to, you know, let the world know about your book Shadowcast. So can you give us a little bit of a, a little pitch and then I can, you know, share a few of my thoughts as, as a reader of it. And, uh, yeah, we, we can kind of dive into that. Sure. Um, so Shadowcast is about uh, investigative journalist Dakota Kilroy. She unfortunately loses her job in New York City and is forced to move back home with her parents. And during that time, she decides to start a true crime podcast called Shadowcast to search for her best friend from high school who went missing 12 years ago. And there pretty much was no leads on what happened to her. So she uses the podcast to just sort of keep track of the investigation as well as get the word out there. And little does she know, someone very sinister is listening in and going to mess with her investigation. That I think it highlights a lot of the, the really interesting appeal of the book. Yeah. So yeah, I just barely read it. Um, I can definitely say it's, it's definitely worth uh, everyone's time. You know, horror fans will definitely enjoy it because it has a lot of interesting, very dark tidbits to it. I, I consumed it over like uh, two or three reading sessions. It was uh, just really a, a solid, uh, very spooky experience, but, you know, in, in a way that is much, very much grounded in reality and, you know, in, in the real-life monsters that uh, sometimes walk among us. So, well, and I think it's also, I mean, I ha- unfortunately didn't get the chance to read the book. I have access to the book and I will be reading it, but what a, what a pragmatic um, kind of topic for nowadays. I mean, podcasting has exploded in the last few years and who's really listening? You know, it's kind of a creepy thought to think about. Exactly. I kind of feel like some of these true crime podcasts who have sort of a, a mission in mind of solving a case kind of creep me out because generally, you know, they're not a cop. They're not someone who has, you know, like a police force behind them, a badge and a gun. They're usually like a a lone investigator. And if there's a chance that the perpetrator is still alive, I always thought that these people who have, you know, more of a a motive and don't just want to give you kind of the details of the case uh, are putting themselves in danger if the perpetrator ever does come across the podcast. So that's how I, I came up with the idea was that I noticed that there's, you know, a new cropping of, of true crime interests and some people who have taken an interest in solving cold cases. And I just feel like sometimes people maybe run into a case without thinking that they could be putting themselves in danger if the, you know, if they ever get found out by the person who's done this thing. And I think, you know, in the world of podcasting, we, everyone, Kind of has that aim of going big, going viral, <laughs> really becoming an internet presence, and that is a risk, especially in this true crime. And like you're saying, it it's a very fascinating and unsettling kind of thought project of thinking how much of us is out there on the internet. Like, who's listening to our podcast? You know, Ugh. <laughs> great. 
Then I got me creeped out. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, and and who is is listening to uh, your podcast as well? Because uh, you also yes. have uh, the Dead Letters podcast, which uh, you know I'm also just going to put a little plug in for because also really worth your time, especially if you uh, enjoy kind of that uh, true crimey vein, but but you know with a, a little bit of a fun spin on it because it's not. You know, it's it's a fictional story, but it kind of has that same or a lot of those same sort of trappings, which is uh, real, real good. Yeah, and uh, all of season one is out, so if people want to binge that, it's basically everywhere podcasts are found. And I am writing these scripts for season two, so that should hopefully be a thing by the end of this year. I hope. Uh, even more awesome stuff from you to look forward to. So, yeah. Real excited there. Um, well, you know, as, as you referenced, uh, there there is a, a sinister uh, figure uh, that is present, uh, you know, listening to this shadow cast in, in the book. So I do just kind of want to ask you one uh, hard-hitting question as a, as a uh, person interviewing you. Uh, is there a specific serial killer or a couple of serial killers that serve as inspirations for your villain? Well, it's actually mostly a fictional one. It's Norman Bates, is, but Norman Bates is, is loosely based on Ed Gein, who was a real serial killer, so kind of both of them by default, um, or, or Ed Gein by default, uh, because he did inspire Norman Bates. I've always been fascinated by men who have weird relationships with their moms, like enmeshed, really close, but not, you know, not in a good way, close in a they control each other way and that plays a part of this guy's psychology and they kind of have just like a, a mutually destructive relationship and it makes him um makes him you know the way he is and ed gein had a messed up relationship with his mom and um he like the reason he's the inspiration for buffalo bill in silence of the lambs and he like made a woman suit because he wanted to climb back in his mother it's so gross like it's so gross but so it's like that extra level like thankfully that's not this guy's mo because i couldn't write that that's just too gross for me but um like it shows you when this like mother-son relationship goes wrong it can really go wrong Absolutely, and it is part of what made the book uh, get under my skin. So definitely uh, worth worth seeing it just for our, our uh, real creepy dynamic between those two characters. So yeah, definitely again, just highly recommend it to everybody. It uh, so so when is the book uh, available to to all of our excellent listeners? February twenty fifth. So maybe I don't know when you guys are planning on releasing it, but soonish around whenever this comes out um it will be on amazon as a print or ebook as well as through my publisher black rose writing so you can get it at those two places yeah and this episode should be hopefully dropping start of uh next week so it, basically yeah you'll only have to wait like i don't know a week a week and some change awesome. to, to to get get it so you know pre-order it because pre-order sales are real important everybody uh mm -hmm. so do that because uh, it is, like I said, worth your time, especially you know during these these dreary winter months. You know, just get yourself a nice book off of Amazon, uh, have it show up at your house, and then just you know s settle in for a, a good creepy time. 
<laughs> and it's Valentine's. What is exactly. more romantic than snuggling up and reading about a serial killer? <laughs> Get yourself a cup of tea. Read about murder. Yep. It sounds. I mean, honestly, I think that's what Valentine's Day is all about. <laughs> all right. Well. Should we shift gears into extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile? This case is about catching a monster. Ladies and gentlemen, I am that innocent suspect. You are skating on thin ice, partner. The media has convicted Ted before he's had his day in court. I'm gagged, and you're not. I wonder whether he did it or not. I'm more popular than Disney World. Yes, and this movie title is just too much. I mean, I get where it's coming from, but yeah, I can it's never just like three words too long. I have to like double check because I'm like, wait, is it shockingly wicked and extremely evil? Is it? I don't know. I just I, I remember all of the words, but I don't ever remember the order, so I always have to like make sure I'm reading it off of something. Yeah, you read my mind when I was <laughs> IMDBing this movie. I think I put in like shockingly bad, yeah. extremely evil, and wicked. <laughs> well, and I hate how evil and vile are anagrams of each other. So it's like my dyslexic brain is trying to shockingly vile and evil. Like which which right. one goes first? Because they look the same. Pick a lane. Pick a lane. <laughs> I guess the the first thing I wanted to do to kind of kick off our conversation is you know okay so this film is about Ted Bundy and specifically about his relationship uh, with a woman named Liz Kendall who uh, he was engaged to when he was living in Washington. And, you know, he, he maintained a relationship with her, especially, you know, all throughout the early years of him, you know, getting arrested and things like that. And, you know, his arrest in Utah, as well as him dealing with some legal proceedings and uh, his subsequent two escapes in Colorado. So, you know, it, it was basically yeah, this, this very lengthy, for a while, long-distance relationship between her and him. And so, you know, it's a film that, that kind of deals with that relationship more than it deals with, like, the specific murders that he was committing, which is definitely a, a kind of a, a different take on the, the serial killer. So by, I, I kind of wanted to kick off our conversation by, you know, kind of looking at what makes Bundy so fascinating? Why, why do we talk about him more than we talk about almost any other serial killer? Why... why why do we care about him so much as this kind of big, interesting, horrifying icon in America? I think in part, for me at least, is, like you say, Nathaniel, Ted Bundy isn't some wild, horrific monster like Ed Gein or Jeffrey Dahmer, where their acts were just wildly depraved. And I mean, Bundy's acts were depraved. I think we need to set that standard. But the sensationalism of his murder was pretty vanilla, if we want to use that term. However, Bundy, I think, is one of the few serial killers who is in modern, like, in the last, what, 50 years? I think a lot of, kind of, the crazier serial killers, and as I say this, Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't that far off either. I don't know, there's, there's a sense of sensationalism with his trial and the women, and it's almost like Hollywood and the media did spin his story in a positive light and almost made us feel sympathetic for his case. And maybe that's because the nature of his crimes weren't as lurid as, you know, say, Dahmer's. But it is this weird psychological I think conundrum. it's mostly because he's attractive. Like, we're just, we're simple creatures. We like 
people, regardless of if you're attracted to men yeah. or not, like you like people who are good looking and you're more likely to be on the side of someone who's good looking. Like it's been psychologically proven that people who are conventionally attractive or exceptionally attractive get just, you know, an easier time in life. So I think when people saw him, they kind of were like, oh, he looks like someone I could be friends with or someone I would want to date. He can't be guilty. He's, you know, he's wrongfully accused this poor, poor, handsome man. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I, and, and, and I definitely agree. And I think another thing that, that I think makes him so interesting to people to, to look at is the fact that he did escape custody. Um, you know, like, like basically his crimes could have stopped cold, you know, at least in Utah. It, it, they should have stopped in Utah. And then, you know, when he went to, or was sent from the, the Utah prison to Colorado, yeah, like, he shouldn't have escaped at all, much less escaped twice from their custody. And then, you know, ended up going to Florida and then doing uh, some of his most horrific, most notorious murders. And that's, you know, ultimately where he met his fate. But the, the fact that he managed to kill people in Washington, California, you know, really, like, all of the states around or just, you know, kind of on the on the West, or in the West, is, you know, makes him very interesting to, to look at, because, you know, we, we don't know the extent of a lot of his crimes. You know, he, he confessed to a bunch of the murders at the very end, mostly just to co- commute his sentence another day, or things like that. But it, it was one of those things where, because people have have stories of weird men approaching them, or things like that, that they got away from, it, it definitely, I think, cements him in, in the minds of a lot of people and so you know it's it's oh d- you know was he a threat to this person was he a threat to this other person um and yeah living in utah uh, which max and i both do definitely like people of of the generation of like our parents you know they there were people who interacted with bundy who knew him um and and you know knew that knew him you know living here in utah and and you know there are stories that that get passed around even today among like you know my high school students are like oh yeah like my mom's older sister or something uh got asked on a date by ted bundy or things like that it's it it definitely um, kind of makes him more scary at least locally because he was initially captured here well and to that point even i found you know when this movie first came out there were a ton of funny Utah jokes and tweets that were coming out and one of my favorites is Utah culture is knowing somebody's whose mom's roommate's friend's sister one time met Ted Bundy but felt a prompting (laughs) from the Holy Ghost to not go on a date with him (laughs) like that (laughs) that encapsulates all of Utah culture I love that revolving around Ted Bundy like everybody knows someone you know quote unquote who almost was a victim of Ted Bundy He's like your Bigfoot. Really, though. Exactly. Really. Yeah. Um, another. Because I lived in Oregon, so I, I, we had Bigfoots to worry about, not, not serial killers. <laughs> another fun one I found just in doing my research was, my dad used to work with Ted Bundy at the University of Utah, and every Friday my dad would say, "See you Monday, Bundy," and I can't imagine how much Ted actually thought about murdering him for it. <laughs> All of this, though, I think is very pertinent to this movie because when this trailer dropped i was one of the people who saw it and was like absolutely not this movie looks like some 
romanticization of Ted Bundy and how beautiful he is and how his trial was a lie or whatever. And so I didn't watch it for a few years after it came out. Um, I, I was kind of disgusted at how the trailer portrayed Bundy in this kind of warm, romantic light. What about you guys? Yeah, I was just going to say, I kind of came to it a little late that I, for some reason, it didn't, didn't really cross my radar. I don't know why it wouldn't have come up. Oh, I didn't have Netflix for a, a short time. So I think in, because it was summer of 2019. So I think I, I had tried to make myself more productive and got rid of like some streaming services. So I kind of came to it a little late post um, controversy. And I just decided to watch it one day. And then, you know, upon my Googling, I realized there was controversy around it. So it's kind of hard, like going backwards. I can see how if you just say like, oh, a Ted Bundy biopic, people are instantly going to be like, but what about the victims? And what about this? And what about that? But if you actually just put that to the back of your mind and, and watch it, 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 it's not some Ted Bundy is awesome piece of film. Yeah, I agree. Once I finally did watch the movie, it's very apparent that this is not anything related to romanticizing the Bundy case. But but it definitely does a good job of, of showing, and we'll get into this more in a minute, but of, of showing like why people found him appealing, you know, why, why there were, you know, flocks of young women who, who were attending his trial and sitting there smiling at him and stuff in spite of the fact that he had just killed two young women in a in a sorority house yeah yeah to me i felt like yeah this this movie definitely uh had some unfortunate marketing i i think yeah maybe it was trying to play to the to that crowd a little bit to to say hey the people who are like weirdly in love with this monstrous person you know, oh yeah, come watch our movie. Maybe it'll be worth your time. And then, you know, maybe pulls the rug out from under them. But unfortunately, I think it's a, such a small sliver of the potential audience that it, it really just kind of got hurt by, by marketing of, oh yes, uh, we got Zac Efron as Bundy. And, and like, he did a great job. But yeah, to me, I, I felt like it was more that it was a film about about one thing, but the marketing made it seem like it was something else. And overall, it was a very, very powerful movie. Um, I, as much as a beefcake as Zac Efron is, <laughs> um, I think having his, you know, he's a very handsome person, and it was kind of this mind game of, oh, I love Zac Efron, you know, High School Musical, he's beautiful, but he's playing this creep serial killer i think it really tapped into this conundrum that people have that you were talking about earlier of you know ted bundy was a good looking guy how can someone this handsome do these depraved acts i i don't know i think it was a very good choice and zach efron has come a long way from troy bolton of high school musical fame <laughs> and the acting was phenomenal the strong performances from everybody yeah, they're great. I also love Lily Collins. I think she did an excellent oh, agreed. job. Agreed. So good. Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah, let, maybe let's just kind of dive into some of the specifics of like work, what worked in the film, what didn't work in the film. But yeah, let's start with, with the good. Um, so yeah, again, also just going to echo, yeah, Zach, uh, Zach Efron really has come a long way in his career uh, and, and gave a very strong performance. I, I really liked the moments... Uh, that we got to actually even compare to like the real life Bundy, 
because like during the credits, you know, it, it shows a few clips of like actual like uh, news coverage and things like that, and so we get to see a few of those moments that they took and just you know replicated in the film, and I feel like the way that he approached those scenes, especially. He, he knocked it out of the park. Yeah, he did an, an excellent job. Uh, that he, he was, like, not playing a caricature of him, which I think is easy to do because he is, like, a charismatic guy. But he took his own, I think, his own spin on Bundy that it's, like, it's realistic, but it's not just, like, this is how he would say it. Well, and I really loved those kind of shot-by-shots, especially towards the credits, because, it, again, I think it impacted me a little bit harder of how well this movie was done and how authentic it was to what was happening in the trial. Um, again, it took a lot of that romanticism out because it was just showing us, this is what happened. This guy's a narcissist. He's manipulative, and he's also a killer. Another thing that I really like about this film is just how strongly it uh, played off of Liz's stand, or you know, her, her perspective th- uh, for the film. You know, I, I liked that, you know, the, the film was constructed in a way that, you know, showed us things where we got to ask the same questions that she was asking. But it gave us a very firm conclusion that, yes, no, he is the murderer. But we, we got to see how manipulative, how charismatic he is, how, you know, she thought that she understood who he was. You know, they were engaged. He was almost going to be the the stepdad to her uh, daughter and and then we get to see the the horrifying impact of what does it mean for this man to be the one who you know at, at first allegedly did these things and then for sure did these things and how that affects her life and how it causes a, a big breakdown in a lot of who she is I, I felt like that perspective was uh, the kind of story that we don't necessarily get to see in a lot of these serial killer uh, biopics, and I, I felt like that was definitely worthwhile. Because, yeah, it wasn't just glamorizing a Bundy, and it wasn't just playing off of the real murders for a, a cheap entertainment. It, it definitely was about, yeah, what does it mean to know somebody who is doing these horrifying things? Well, it humanized a lot of the characters. You know, we read in these stories, you know, how could they ever believe X, Y, or Z, or how did they not know and the movie did a really good job at saying, like, you can know these dark and wicked things. But at the same time, when you care about someone and you love someone, it's this incredible cognitive dissonance that you have to experience of, you know, shock and horror of what they're doing. It's a betrayal. Um, and those moments, you know, watching Liz kind of struggle through this, uh, I wish we would have gotten more of that because it just... Mm -hmm. broke your heart for her of of how you know she had created this whole world this whole life and then all of a sudden it shattered um and you know being a person of divorce you know i'm not a serial killer but i can understand that empathetic reaction of destroying that kind of life narrative for someone and how heavy that emotion can feel another thing i really liked about the film was just that that it does a really good job of showing us how so many people managed to be under his spell. It, it you know, it, it it played out the story in a way where, you know, we don't get any of the super hard evidence that he in fact is the killer until pretty late in the film. We we get to see things, yeah, through the perspective of him 
uh, being able to, to make his spin on things first. And, oh, no, it's it's just because uh, I ran a stop sign and for some reason, you know, I had to look just enough like this other sketch and they had my name for some reason. I don't even know why. Someone must have just laughed and thought that it would look like me. You know, we get to see things, you know, spun by Bundy before it kind of gets to the uh, to the right people's ears. And so I, I liked seeing that because it helps understand a lot of that mystique around him as a, as a person um, and, and get to kind of dispel a lot of that. Yeah. I particularly liked the very first courtroom scene, which is his first time in, in Utah and um, is a, a, an attempted kidnapping. So the victim is alive and there's kind of some doubt because, you know, when you're fearing for your life that you sometimes don't always, you know, remember every detail of the person who is attacking you. So the, you know, cross-examination did enough to sort of sow a little bit of doubt in both like the judge and by like, you know, us, the audience, that maybe, you know, she was under so much just, you know, duress that someone who kind of looked like Ted did this. And um, like you kind of forget for a moment that, you know, it is for real him. He's an awful human being. And when, you know, Liz finds out that, you know, the judge says he's guilty, she's like freaking out because she thinks her boyfriend is like wrongfully being sentenced to jail, which is terrifying. And so for a minute, I really feel like bad for her and then like him via her because I'm seeing him as like the boyfriend who is being taken from her. And I'm like, oh no, this is like a nightmare. And then I have to remember that, you know, it's, he's not being innocently you know, taken away to jail. He did this thing. Something that it doesn't bring up in the film, but I, I find interesting just, you know, kind of looking at, at him as, as a figure is uh, I've had the experience just through uh, a lot of, like, Utah writing conventions and things like that to meet a person who did his psych eval. His name is Al Carlisle. Uh, he recently just passed away. He talked about basically the experience of yeah doing his psychic eval he was the head of the utah state hospital which was you know the, the mental hospital and yeah so he sat down with him and talked to him and talked to that basically you know they had three different psychiatrists talk to him and two of them were very much manipulated by him and he actually kind of saw through a lot of his bullcrap and so it was kind of interesting to see how you know, to, to hear him talk about, you know, meeting Bundy and how manipulative it, uh, he was because, you know, he was able to talk to, uh, to him about a lot of his childhood experiences and talk to him about a lot of different things and got to see how, yeah, how much everything he said was, was spun. Everything was, you know, made or was, was presented in a way to make him seem sympathetic or to make him seem like the victim or the or this heroic figure, and, and you know, so, you know, kind of having that background when I came into this uh, film was really interesting to, to have, because, you know, looking at that information and then going like, okay, yes, this is how he does a good job of manipulating things, because, you know, it's either that he is the poor victim or he is the most heroic guy ever, and, and it's never anything in between, you know, you get to see how powerful his narcissistic tendencies are and how manipulative and charismatic he is because uh, he has so much practice feeding people lies. Yeah, so it was kind of cool to see those courtroom scenes because, yeah, you get to see it through that perspective. And, and yeah, again, it makes you ask certain questions. Yeah, and 
I just want to say it it takes a lot to fool a forensic psychologist. So that shows like how little hope does the average person have if a forensic psychologist is also being duped by him and not just one, apparently two, according to your your source. I had um, one of my psychology professors was um, a forensic psychologist for Rikers Island. So she had like seen some of the worst criminals in the world and she's tough as nails. So I can't imagine how conniving you have to be to fool someone like that. One thing I really liked in this movie was like the, the ways that it used little moments of horror very sparingly, but very effectively. Like that, that closing scene where it has, has the horror of, of him like writing hacksaw, you know, with his breath on the, on the glass. Best scene ever. Yeah, that, that scene really made the whole movie for me. Yeah, I actually rewatched it. I don't really like to do that. Yeah, I I don't really do that kind of thing either. But yeah, like that, just like how mm-hmm. that whole scene played out. It, we we had like little set pieces kind of present throughout the film of okay, yeah, she was handed this envelope, but she's never looked at it, and finally she pulls it out, and she, you know, what happened to her head, and and we finally get to see her really really confront him in in a really meaningful way, and then yeah, him putting hacksaw. Oh, it just really cements the horror of what he really did. It was so good, and it it's such a good suspense moment. And there's also, I don't know if you picked up on it, but um, the background music has a saw in it. So as the tension picks up, there's a sound of the saw. So if you like rewatch it a few times, you actually like start to notice that that there's a sound of. I mean, I don't know what it sounds like to cut human bone, but I've feeling that's what uh it would sound like is this like frantic saw sound that as she's like realizing what he's writing it just picks up in in almost in that kind of like psycho jarring kind of ee noise it's just great it adds that insanity to it ah that is so good that is so good like just very impressive filmmaking um yeah whoever was in charge of the sound design then for that little Mm -hmm. bit was mm. They, yeah. they, they did a, a real good job there. Right? Were, were there any other things that, that you really kind of want to highlight as far as like what, what worked for the film? Yeah, um, I actually, um, I kind of am a bit of a, a nerd about clothes in film. And I noticed that their outfits mirror each other very frequently. And especially in the ending scene, they're both in a full length orange outfit. Obviously his is prison orange. Um, but hers is just a a long dress, and I kind of felt like it's symbolic of both of them being in a form of prison, that he's literally in jail, but Ted has been mentally keeping her in jail, and the whole time, you know, she's begging him to release her by admitting to his crime, and I just, I liked that they're, they're often paired in the same outfit, um, like, he will be wearing a uh, like a, a beige sweater and she'll also be wearing a beige sweater or a, a both wearing a um, brown leather jacket at the same time even though they're different they're kind of always on the same page except in um, the first time she confronts him they're actually wearing like non-coordinated clothes and it's like the only time they're on like different pages so to speak oh wow, that's fantastic yeah I, I you know that that's definitely the kind of thing that when 
yeah, I never notice those things when I'm watching something, but then when those things get pointed out to me, I just go, ah, oh, yeah, filmmaking is the best. Like, it's amazing when the, the level of detail mm-hmm. that get that gets uh, woven into these kinds of, of films and, and the, you know, very, like, subtle emotional impact that those things can have. You know, I think, you know, both of us being writers of literature, it, it can be interesting to see what other mediums get to use in their arsenal to be effective. And yeah, so yeah, things like that are so cool. Also, the soundtrack slaps. It, it does. It really does. It's, like, the, the whole yeah. thing was solid. I, man, now I need to, like, add that to my Spotify. <laughs> yeah, no, I, there's there's actually um, there is on Spotify a uh, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile soundtrack uh, playlist already in existence. So they're all there because they're all. I love. I'm a big fan of like seventies classic rock. So there's some really good songs on there. But I've had um, Lucky Man in my head for like weeks now because of this movie. And um, there's also the the scene where they're like getting drunk and they eventually have sex and they're playing um like really loud jazz music and i i just thought that scene was done really well because it it kind of shows a good relationship dynamic and also just the the element of sound of the soundtrack it it just makes the whole movie yeah it really like you can feel the emotion of each scene with the soundtrack as well and and i like how that particular scene gets recontextualized throughout Mm -hmm. the the film too and and how each time the yeah that sound design tweaks it a little bit more and more and, and makes it so yeah that very you know sweet tender moment that 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 she cherished now has this nasty uh taintedness to it and that yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly how you would feel you know every moment of you know that that you thought were uh, was, was a moment of, of romance and sincerity would be totally recontextualized. All right, uh, should we move into to some of the uh, less good things about the film? Yeah. I guess the, the first thing for me is just I felt like a lot of the scenes with Liz, unfortunately, you know, as soon as Bundy was kind of out of the picture, you know, he was being incarcerated and stuff, a lot of her scenes kind of felt samey and flat, uh, which I, I thought was a mm-hmm. shame because, yeah, like she should be the protagonist. But she did not do very much pro-tagging. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you know, she wasn't super active. Um, you know, we get to see her reactions, and, and that is an interesting thing in and of itself. But uh, I, I felt like it was kind of almost jarring to, to cut back to her and, and cut back to her watching the news and trying to move on with her life and her new romance and this and that. I felt like just a lot of those scenes, like even though she did a good job with what she was given as an actress, just there wasn't that much there, unfortunately, because, you know, she is, uh, you know, especially with the Florida stuff, you know, like a thousand miles away. So, you know, what can she do other than just, you know, drink and be sad? And so along those lines, I actually would have really liked it if they had given the revelation that she was the person who gave Ted's name to the police much sooner. Because I think it would have made uh, moments of tension between her and him uh, much more scary or uh, uncomfortable or things like that. If mm-hmm. we knew that, uh, but, you know, he didn't, that would have definitely put a, an interesting spin on everything. And, and you know, any given 
phone call could be the time that he is calling and goes, you know, I know that you told them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I felt like that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's kind of hard because clearly she's going through a depressive episode with the, the drinking and the moping around the house because it's pretty clear at this point, regardless of his guilt, he most likely will be sentenced to life, if not get the death penalty. So it's kind of hard, like, depression makes you a passive person, like, it happens to you, unfortunately. Um, so that's, it's kind of hard to, especially since this is a real person, and we're, you know, we're using, she has a real book called The Phantom Prince, by the way, if people want to read it and get the real full story. She, you know, is going to be depressed during this time, so it's kind of hard to show action, so it's like, I can't really fault yeah, because she's a real person, so I can't be like, oh, it should have been, you should have been more active. Like, you know, I don't have a serial killer boyfriend, so I can't tell you how to go through that. But it's, yeah, if if maybe there was some tension or like in her moments of depression, she admitted to either Ted or just to her friends who were supporting her that she's the one who uh, called in his name. And that's why she's having such a hard time. It's not just like, oh no, this happened to my boyfriend. It's like, it happened to him possibly because of me. And it would just at least give her something to admit or something to actively do than just watch his court case and be upset. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I think it would have helped to have that information sooner. But, you know, as a whole, I feel like, yeah, they, they did a pretty good job working with things, but, you know, it just ultimately kind of made me connect with her less and, and connect with her plight less than I wanted to mm -hmm. um, because yeah she was very passive for a lot of it and yeah again it makes sense and it is what in fact probably really did happen but it's still just yeah it, it makes it a narrative that's harder to connect with uh, the the next thing that I had uh, for, for me is just that it's also kind of difficult to buy into a lot of the, the like the beats of the courtroom drama stuff uh, because like, you, you know how it all ends. Like, we all know that mm -hmm. Ted Bundy gets executed uh, eventually and things like that. And so it's it's hard to care about every little individual beat when you know the ending going into it. You know, I, I felt like they, they still did a good job of making those scenes, you know, work uh, in, in terms of being, you know, dramatic and interesting. But still, mm -hmm. it, it's hard to, buy, to have that strong buy-in. Did you feel that way? Yeah. But yeah, it's like, it's hard to, I mean, I liked from a, a character study because seeing Ted as like his own prosecution and his own, I guess, almost like press media man, like he was in charge of his own image and seeing how well he was able to just a kind of tap dance around the, you know, this, the stage, the stage that the, the media was giving him was, I kind of feel like they put it in not just because it, it actually happened and you have to obviously mentioned his trial, but it just shows you from a character study that he was able to, you know, smooth talk interviewers and he was able to, to you know, put on a good presentation in front of a judge to the point that at the end the judge was like, oh, it's too bad you went another direction because I would have loved you to practice law in front of me. Like, how... The fact that a judge who is sentencing you basically to death for horrific crimes is like, oh, sorry, partner, you took the wrong route. It's like, clearly he's able to just like win over everyone. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that is definitely a very interesting thing. And, and I really liked uh, John Malkovich as the judge, by the way. He, he really did a, a good job of kind of mm -hmm. 
showing this really interesting character who who definitely you know does a good job of, of really getting after Ted Bundy in, in uh, some interesting ways, but also yeah is uh, very sympathetic towards him uh, as well, which was an interesting thing to see. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, it, it's just yeah, it's it's not usual that or to to see a judge be anything other than this kind of weird impassive force in in a lot of uh, film and and television. I was going to say I did enjoy all of the Florida pun dad jokes that were happening around this time. Um, the whole, like, you're skating on thin ice and ice doesn't last long in Florida. I just, I kind of liked that there was this, like, cheesy humor, even though they're all being, you know, it's a very serious case, what's going on, that the, the prosecution and the, the judge and, like, some figures in the media were making, like, oh, it's the Sunshine State jokes, even though they're talking about murder. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely appreciated that, too. And, and I find it really just kind of an interesting thing that, that, you know, those were real lines from real life. Like, mm -hmm. it it definitely kind of shows that this was uncharted territory, you know, that having a capital murder case be publicly, you know, shown on television throughout the whole country was something that hadn't happened before. And and so, yeah, yeah they're like, okay, how do we handle this? Do we make crack jokes? Do we, you know, like, how, how do you handle that kind of situation, especially if this is the first time this has happened? Uh, so yeah, I, I liked seeing that uh, mm -hmm. because it was moments of levity, but it was also moments of like, yeah, what do you do when a camera is pointed at you for the first time? I'm, I'm sure it was a, a weird situation to be in, you know, being the prosecutor and being the judge and stuff like that. And so, yeah, the, the, the real life awkwardness slips through. Yeah, I think they might have, I mean, I can't speak for them, but they might have wanted to like put on a, a good show or be likable and kind of get their 15 minutes of fame because who knows when they would be televised again. So it's kind of, I could see, especially opposing counsel who seemed to be a bit of a showboat um, played by, I forget the actor, Jim Parsons, right? For Sheldon Cooper. Um, seemed to like the media attention. And I, I haven't done enough research to know what like their, um, like the real life counterparts, but I could just see someone who like wants the camera there could be like, oh, it's the sunshine state and we're going to drag them out into the light and just, I don't know, wanting to be that kind of you know, in the media that, you know, that would probably play on the news and he probably, you know, enjoyed getting that attention. Yeah. And, and I also like that, you know, that was kind of a way to almost counteract the charisma of Bundy too. Like, you know, both sides needed to seem likable mm -hmm. for this case to work in terms of at least the court of public opinion. Because, yeah, Bundy did such a powerful job of getting the attention of, of so many people and, and, you know, being someone that people were rooting for in spite of his horrific crimes. I guess, are there other things uh, that, that you didn't feel like the film did especially well? The passage of time. Because it's hard to age up people in, in general, and I just think that the only way I... I fully understood how many years had passed is the fact that they had a different actress play the daughter of Molly. So she started off as a two-year-old and at the end is a young teenager. So clearly, you know, a, more than a decade has passed. And even if they flash the number, like, oh, we're now in 1977 or something, it doesn't kind of register to you the same way um, as seeing someone age. So not to get like, I don't know, they didn't need to go all special effects on it, but I kind of forgot that 
um, so much time had passed because Lily and, and Zach obviously only aged like a few months during the production of this. And at the end, when, you know, she's demanding, like, release me, um, she looks almost exactly the same as she, she did um, at the very beginning. And I kind of wish they had done maybe, like, put some gray in her hair or, you know, maybe just a little bit of faux wrinkling to show that she's now, I believe, like, in her 40s versus in her late 20s at the start of this whole thing. And because I just kept having to be like, oh, wait, you know, wait, what year are we in? And how many people, like, would have been killed during this point? It just, if they could have just made the timeline a little clearer, I would have preferred that. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, I, I think I noticed, like, some very, very slight wrinkling that they kind of mm -hmm. added to her. But they were maybe a little bit too subtle with it. Just, you know. Yeah. I mean, and, and some of that, yeah, might have been because I watched a lot of the film on my phone. But yeah, like, I, just bringing forward some of those details a little bit more would have helped ground it in reality more. My last thing that, that you know, didn't work as well for me was is really just this kind of idea that it didn't necessarily add that much to the conversation around Bundy. Like, I, I felt like it did do a good job of showing why people were, you know, weirdly in love with him. Like, it, it kind of acknowledged that it brought that in, into the, the light more clearly, I think, which is good. But I feel like the, the more I've learned about Bundy, and I've, I've read a, a couple of books about him, I've you know, heard presentations from like Al Carlisle, like I, I referenced, things like that, the more I, I have kind of come to realize that, you know, people like to talk about Bundy as though he is like this weird enigma, right? That, that he is the the one who had a, a great childhood and and that he doesn't have all of those you know traditional signs of being a serial killer but actually the more i've learned about him the more that he actually is pretty mundane as far as not being special uh, as uh, uh, when it comes to being a serial killer you know he did actually have a lot of those signs his his childhood was messed up uh, in a lot of very mm -hmm. important ways um you know his his mother was, you know, he, he grew up for at least, you know, the first few years of his life thinking that his mother was his older sister. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, he was like five or six that he found out, oh, wait, no, my older sister is in fact my mom. And my, you know, my parents are actually my grandparents and things like that. Like, that messed him up really bad. And, that you know, so he has a lot of those hallmark mm -hmm. signs of a uh, serial killer and, you know, the, the kind of the traits and, and things that he did in his youth that we do tie so, or closely with serial killer behavior. And I don't know, I, I just feel like, you know, a lot of times, yeah, we treat him like this weird enigma and this film had the opportunity to kind of show us that maybe he wasn't, that he isn't special. Yeah. And, and, I, and I felt like that was kind of one of the things that it sought out to do, but it didn't do that strongly enough i think it made him feel more special in my opinion yeah yeah i i i feel like it it definitely yeah made him seem yeah like this really weird really charismatic guy and that is part of the conversation around him but yeah at the end of the day like he isn't that different than any other serial killer and i think that is the more important conversation to be having about him yeah and i mean there also should be some conversation which it touches on but it doesn't fully show it is that basically be careful who you trust which I guess is like Liz's lesson is that she fell for all of his charms but also his victims fell for all of his charms 
and um, Carol Ann fell for all of his charms. So it's, um, which she kind of creeped me out more than anyone in this film because she, especially when she shows up at the pound when they're looking for a dog, like out of nowhere. And I just was like, oh, that's a red flag, like red flag that this person you know from a different state just shows up at this place. And how does she know? Like, it was just creepy. Yeah, and she's like, oh, hi, Ted. Yeah, just like, oh, no big deal. No big deal. I'm just here looking for friends. And I heard about your case. And now I find I followed you here. It's like, sure. And just like her kind of, and I don't mean to insult the real woman, but the character, uh, the sort of almost like Manson family devotion she has to him of just like kind of just staring at him like whatever you want, Ted when they're talking in, in prison or on the stand or whatnot, it's, uh, I found that like to be, even though Ted's the more disturbing individual, I felt more unsettled whenever she was on screen than when he was on screen. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I guess props to, to that actress. So, mm -hmm. uh, Kaya, uh, Scodelario, um, yeah, she really did a good job with that role, um, in, in making, that character both believable, but also, yeah, deeply unnerving. It would have been interesting to actually have a biopic from her perspective. I don't know if she's ever publicly, like, talked about it, because I know she did have a child with him, Rose Bundy, um, and it would just be interesting Poor to child. have seen her, her perspective. Yeah, that I don't... Um, I don't know. I know that Rose Bundy got married, but I don't know if she she's now up in years, like I think 60s or 70s. I don't know if she had children, but there's a bunch of, this is a random site, there's a bunch of teenagers on TikTok who claim that they are Ted Bundy's grandchild. Um, that That's not true. Please, please do not believe them if you, people of the public, that's not, that's a lie. <laughs> yeah, and also, why would you brag about that? Why would you bring attention to that? Like, I, I feel really bad for for Rose because, you know, she she has no say in who fathered her, but like she's got some messed up parents, and and I'm sure there there was some psychological trauma to unpack there, and I hope she did. Uh, yeah, it, that's yeah, it's a lot to I can't imagine. I also I've always wanted to know like how did she find out, but well, guess we'll never know. Yeah, that that is a real interesting story that I would want to, to hear. I mean, part of that might just be just my, my, you know, morbid interest in, you know, people's, I guess, trauma. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, psychologically, like, it, I'm sure that was difficult to, to parse, especially because I'm mm -hmm. sure, you know, she might have grown up hearing nothing but glowing things about her, her dad and how innocent he was and stuff from her uh, very messed up mom. But that's a whole other, you know, barrel of fish mm -hmm. um or kettle of fish or whatever the saying is should we move on to ratings yeah okay so screams doesn't necessarily feel like the right thing to be approaching a, a true crime piece like this with but hey we're gonna do it anyway mm -hmm. so i gave it two screams i i felt like the that final scene that we talked about with the hacksaw thing really got under my skin but other than that i wouldn't say the movie is really scary in any significant way yeah uh, what i about would you? give it a two as well yeah i would uh, i agree with your two um because 
there's also the there's some descriptions of how he killed the sorority girls in uh, his court case, and those descriptions are a bit unsettling, especially when you take into account that the, this is true and it did happen. Um, so that's why it's above a, a one for me, just because you know if this was complete completely fictional, it wouldn't really bother me because it's like oh it didn't happen, but he did do these horrible things to his victims. Um, but I, I do like that since it isn't that scary. It's a way to approach either true crime or horror with people who aren't really fans of the genre. So if you have someone who's a, you know, like a bit jumpy in your life and doesn't really like that sort of thing, this really wouldn't upset them too much. Like it's a darker subject matter, but there's no real gore. There's no jump scares. It's pretty tame. Uh, Max, who had to go to his uh, daughter's basketball game, uh, gave it a one, which eh, I get. I, I think he, he might have not mm-hmm. been thinking about those particular moments. But yeah, as a whole, it's yeah, this isn't uh, necessarily a scary film, but it's definitely still a, a film for horror fans in a lot of ways because it is yeah dealing with a lot of things that we like to talk about, abnormal psychology, the impact of serial killers, things like that. So crowns-wise, I gave it a 7. I felt like it was a, a well-constructed film, though ultimately it did kind of suffer from yeah that, the very inactive protagonist in a lot of um, do you guys do 0.5 crowns, or do they have to be whole numbers? You can do whatever you want. 0.5 is totally Okay, acceptable. awesome. Yeah, so I, I would actually think I'm kind of in the middle between your score and, and Max's score, who's not here, which is a 6. Um, uh, as I would say a 6.5, um, it's done, like, it's a good movie, so it's not like, oh, you know, skip it. It's, it's done well, it has, you know, a concise plot, it's easy to follow, you feel for Liz, and you you see, you know, Zach's performance is really excellent, but it does have kind of that mushy middle where Liz is just depressed, and she's not doing much, and you kind of get a little lost, and you're not really engaged in that when you're waiting to figure out what's going to happen to Ted. Yeah, yeah, there were a few too many scenes of Haley Joel Osment and her cuddling on the couch, uh, as opposed to anything else. Which, yeah, was, I think, ultimately to the detriment of the film, but uh, still, I think, definitely worth seeing, definitely an interesting film in a lot of ways. All right, well, I guess the last big thing that we have is just, uh, how have you been staying spooky lately? Is there anything that you've been watching, playing, consuming, whatever, uh, that, that is uh, spooky that, that you want to shout out here? I mentioned... Uh this on a different podcast, but I'm just going to keep recommending this movie because it's awesome. So I apologize if people have heard me on the other one. Um, Lake Mungo is such an excellent movie. And I still, like, I'm still thinking about it and it's been like three, four weeks since I've seen it. Um, it's a 2008 horror movie, fake documentary out of Australia. It is so eerie and creepy and I've discovered there's like fan theories about what's going on. So I've been like researching it and it just, I can't think about it too late at night or it creeps me out. So I recommend it because woof, it's a good movie. Well, it has been on my to watch list for so long. So I'll, I'll definitely have to, to put it uh, to, to the top of that list. Cause uh, yeah, I, I keep hearing nothing but good about it. So I just need to, you know, pull the trigger and actually watch it. Oh, I was just saying, it's it's just, it's a good watch. It's very, um, it's very quiet. So like, it's hard to watch when you're very distracted because I know you have a young baby like I do. So you kind of have to make sure that, um, like if 
you know, there's noise in the background. You're like kind of have to pause and come back to it because it's it's one of those it, um, blink and you miss it sometimes. That is very good to know. I will uh, find a time where my family is out of the house and I'll just sit down and dig on in. Yeah, so Lake Mungo. How I have been staying spooky lately, though spooky might not be the right word, is uh, I, I recently discovered uh, a TV show called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Have, have you ever heard of this? No. So it is a comedy series, but it definitely is like playing off of a lot of horror tropes and stuff like that. So it came out back in 2004, which is actually like, like incidentally at the exact same time, basically, as when Stephen King's uh, Kingdom Hospital came out. Uh, so it, it's a, a British TV show and, or it was, yeah, a miniseries. It's like six episodes long. But what it does is it takes, like, all of those, like, 80s and 90s, like, horror miniseries, especially, like, those Stephen King ones, like, you know, like uh, Kingdom Hospital or The Stand or um, Rose Red or things like that. And and it's kind of a send-up on all of those. Basically, Garth Marenghi is this, like, horrible amalgamation of, it, like, every bad horror writer ever. And it, uh, it's that he has made this, you know, TV series that got, uh, you know, ended up getting canceled before it started, you know, back in the 90s. And so now he is finally releasing it now, you know, in the, in the 2000s. And so it, like, cuts between the show and then, like, interviews of him talking about the show. And it is absolutely hysterical. Like, if, if you've ever watched any, like, yeah, Stephen King miniseries, <clears throat> if you watch things like Twin Peaks, if you watched... Uh, dark shadows, whatever. Uh, it, it's just like this perfect uh, parody of like everything ridiculous in in horror television that's ever been done. I am kind of obsessed with it, but yeah, it has like a lot I of. Just looked uh, it up. It looks great. Oh, it's so wonderful, and it's all on YouTube. Probably not legally, but you can find every episode on YouTube <laughs> very easily. And yeah, it has like Matt Berry, who is like in the uh, What We Do in the Shadows TV series, uh, Richard uh, Aode, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, fortunately, but yeah, he was like in the IT crowd. It's so terrible in the best conceivable way, and I have been laughing about it for weeks. You know, basically ever since I uh, learned about it, which I, I learned about it on the KingCast, that uh, Stephen King-related podcast that is... Also, just something I have to recommend to everybody. Yeah, they had the person who plays Garth Marenghi and helped you know co-create the show. Uh, he was on, and they talked about the dark half, which was a really good choice. I, I, I paused the episode as soon as they you know presented this idea of the show to me on the podcast and watched an episode, and I was like, okay, I am 100% sold. So uh, everyone uh, who watches bad uh, horror miniseries or who has ever watched one, uh, should definitely check it out, because this will just have you in fits of laughter. That that kind of covers uh, what I wanted to talk about today, um, but uh, where can people find you? Uh, just you know, maybe a refresher of where people can get their hands on, on your book and pre-order it, things like that. Where, uh, you know, let, Let's have you share all your social media and all of that so, so people know what to do. Yeah, so my book is called Shadowcast. It's written by me, VP Morris, and 
You can find it on Amazon just by searching Shadowcast VP Morris. It's an ebook or print. You can also go to my publisher's website. That's a Black Rose Writing and um, search for it there. You can buy it in both forms there. Um, it's you know currently still pre-order, but once February 25th comes, which is coming up real fast, it you know will be out and as soon as they can print it, it will be sent to you or you know ebook it will it will download. So you can get it there. I'm at T Write Repeat on both Twitter and Instagram. That's T-E-A-W-R-I-T-E Repeat. And I'm, you know, around. And also my podcast is the Dead Letters Podcast, and it's at Dead Letters Pod on Twitter as well. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for, you know, talking about uh some some stuff that we haven't really been able to touch on before. So thanks, thanks for, for, for having being me. here, Dame VP Morris. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, since there's nothing else to say, stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.